For so many modern driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present to our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies and then a successful coaching and online course business. But for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. We're here to share an insider's peek into the strategies and mental resilience it takes to create and run six and seven figure online businesses. As women entrepreneurs, only 2% of us will ever earn a million dollars. We've done it ourselves and we're on a mission to help you reach financial independence by chronicling our journey and sharing our proven playbook. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow a business and build a life that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the new podcasts that drop every single Tuesday. Welcome to the And She Spoke podcast. Today, we are talking to Christina Langdon, High Performance Success Coach. This has got to be one of the most interesting interviews we've ever done because we get to hear all about Christina's 19 years working with Martha Stewart. We hardly spoke because one, Christina is a natural storyteller, and two, there are so many stories to tell. She talks about her start selling advertising for Martha Stewart Living, the magazine, finding product placements for the TV show, disgruntled guests, packing heat, Martha's arrest, and what it was like to work for a boss that was in jail, and how they came out of it when Martha was released and ramped up so quickly under Martha's leadership. She also shares with us what she learned from Martha as a visionary and as a leader and how it shaped the coach that she is today. And full disclosure, we did spend some time talking with Christina after we finished the episode and she ended up coaching us. And it was one of the most powerful coaching sessions I have ever witnessed. And it made sense that she's so good at coaching CEOs because of all the things that she personally has experienced over her career in corporate. It's amazing. So please enjoy Christina Langdon. This is a good one. Well, welcome Christina to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Christina, you and I spent uh, basically a week together in Nashville last week. And the stories I heard from you and your experience is also fascinating. I actually feel a little bit like, ah, I don't even know where to start with you. But (laughs) let's start just telling everybody who you are, what you do. I am Christina Langdon, and now I am a high-performance coach. I nurture the next generation of CEOs to help them scale their brain, to scale their businesses. And that was after 30 years of working and leading sales and marketing teams in the media space. I worked for brands like Martha Stewart. I worked for Fast Company, leading teams and in talent. Do we want to just go there, Jenny? Yeah, let's go there. 
Uh oh, I'm ready. I think. <laughs> okay, 30 years in sales and marketing. Um, what we did? Okay, we we know you mark you worked with Martha Stewart. Can we just dive right in? Did what was your role? What did you do? What was it like? Just let's just start talking about her. I worked for Martha Stewart for nearly 20 years. It was about oh, I didn't know it was that long. 19 years, a little over 19 years. And I started in my middle 20s and I started in marketing there. And it How'd was you just get a, the job. No, it's a really good, really good question. I worked at Time Inc. I worked at Time Magazine. And then I went up oh. to work in Time Inc.'s first corporate marketing division uh, where they were selling cross titles. And Martha Stewart Living at that time was a Time Inc. publication. And I was struggling in my role because I felt like I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that was more purposeful. And this magazine came out. It was on my you know, desk at Time Inc. And I was like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. So I hand wrote on my personal stationery a note to the publisher and asked if I could have an interview. And he wrote me back a hand note and said, no. Ugh. And I worked with a woman at Time Inc. who was putting together a very large, the first $100 million integrated marketing sales program ever sold. It was called Chrysler Rediscover America. That's another story about getting into the Democratic National Convention with Chrysler. But I, this woman who I worked on executing this very large program with uh, went on to be the publisher of Martha Stewart. So I knocked on her door and said, you know, I tried. And he said, no. And I'm going to try again. So I actually went over there, as I said, in my early 20s, and I took a, a $10,000 pay cut. I can't remember if it was, I was getting paid like 45 and had to go back to $35,000. But it was dramatic. It was a dramatic cut. But I really felt that I wanted to be a part of a mission-driven company that was doing something really different in the marketplace. So I knew early on that there was something there that was really important to me. And you can be sure that I made up for it pretty quickly. <laughs> so I started Christina, in marketing. Go ahead. Go ahead. What was the mission? Like, just curious, what uh, specifically about Martha's magazine drew you in? It was really about elevating the art of homekeeping and that you could turn your passion and turn it into a profit. So I already sort of had the mm. entrepreneurial thoughts running in my head about all the things that she was doing and creating and helping others to see that they could create. So the business angle always was what really inspired me. And early on, we were calling it a lifestyle magazine. Mm -hmm. And lifestyle at the time, that word wasn't a part of the vernacular. Mm -hmm. And people would be like, what do you mean? That's that there's no way we're going to create another category for you. But in fact, we ended up creating that new category. Mm -hmm. So we had the base magazine, Martha Stewart Living. We also had Martha Stewart Weddings. I moved into a sales role as the advertising director at Martha Stewart Kids Magazine, which was another beautiful, oh. beautiful magazine. And I think I tallied it up. I launched about 23 brands off of the base brand while I was there. And I was the associate publisher of the big brand for many, many, many years, but I was also publisher of Body and Soul. I was publisher of Everyday Food Magazine. And 
ultimately we were running a omni-media business where we were selling across all of our platforms that included television and radio, digital, merchandising. And I think like when you think about integrated marketing, I feel confident saying that a lot of what we did early on was very much trailblazing in terms of advertising and marketing. We were doing integrated marketing before really other people were doing integrated marketing because we weren't a part of a big media conglomerate. Because at that point, Martha had bought her brand back from Time Inc. She went mm-hmm. to Time Inc. and said, I want to do a television show. And they said, I'm sorry, we are in the publishing business. We're not in the broadcast business. And she said, what do I have to do to buy my brand back? And they said $70 million. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was $70 million. So she went to Kmart, which she had a very small brand of sheets with already and said, what do I need to do to build my brand out here exclusively at Kmart? And by the way, will you pay me $70 million ahead of time? And they did. And she wanted to buy her brand back from, from Time Inc. It was like, a so woman was there, doing a really big thing. Wow. And what right. year is, what year around are we talking? Okay. Some it was um uh, probably 1998, 1999, okay. 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I I just I honest I don't know very much about Martha Stewart or the brand I you know know of her, but it was not, not something I really followed or read or watched whatever, but like how amazing was that to see a woman ask for $70 million? Like, yeah. like who, who was she? Like, what was going on? Like, how did she tick? You know, she's a visionary and there are a lot of good things. And there's also that kind of counter there of maybe some of the not so good things when you were a woman in business and you're breaking all the rules and she really didn't care. And she had such incredible belief in herself and belief in her brand even when it was a little mm-hmm. outrageous. I remember two weeks into the, the job, I was sitting in the, you know, the ad sales wing of the office. And the office was really small. I think I was like employee number nine at that time, but we had our own little nook over there. And I was working and everybody else went to lunch. I didn't really know that many people. And Martha came into the, the nook and there was a bunch of advertiser premiums, like gifts that we would give to our clients on sales calls. And I heard this very deep voice. What is this? This doesn't look like my brand. This is, and she probably maybe threw in some more aggressive words, right? (laughs) And she was kind of, I sensed that she was looking for somebody. So I peeked my head out and I was like, oh my God, that is her. It's Martha Stewart. And you hadn't had contact with, because you were in the sales still. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, hi. And she's, did you do this? pointing to these premiums. And I was like, oh no, I I just started two weeks ago. And she said, you are going to learn about my brand. What are you doing? And I said, I was hired into this marketing role. And she said, well, then you're going to learn the value of my brand. You're going to learn what my brand stands for. And she turned around and walked, walked away. And that was the end of the conversation. And a week or so later, I got a phone call from her assistant saying that Martha wanted me to shadow an editor. And that I was supposed to meet her at the farmer's market in Union Square in New York City. Well, I had a, I had a job. <laughs> I had like a job that I was doing in marketing. So I had to go to my boss and say, I got this phone call. So I would get these calls 
often that I was to go meet somebody or I was to go follow somebody or I was to join a meeting. And, you know, I've shared and it's it's really personal to me because it was like me going through the Martha University. Mm-hmm. I really got to know what the brand values were, what the brand stood for and what her expectations were. And she had some of the highest expectations. Most of the time you didn't meet them. That's how high they were. Mm-hmm. And you know, good was never good enough. Great was always the the goal. And we met it a lot of times, but of course we fell short a lot of the times. So you kind of felt like you were on your heels a lot, but I had the gift of learning ahead of time. So people would say, Martha would be presented something from somebody in the advertising world. And she would say, has Christina looked at it? And my bosses would be like, she works for me. So but she just relied on me often. Why, why you? Because she put me through this years-long understanding of the product, what the product stood for. Like when we would go to a farmer's market looking for a pair to photograph for a cover of the magazine, that pair had to like <laughs> had to have a lot of colors, like some yellow, some brown, some orange, like multicolor pair had to have a beautiful stem that actually had a leaf off of it. And they wanted a certain color for the leaf. So we would be looking for the perfect pair for the cover of a magazine. Uh, It wasn't just something that was random. It was very intentional. And they took it really seriously. And it's why I think some of the photography resonated so much. So when you think about two brands like a Better Homes and Gardens in the, uh, in the 90s, and you look at a Martha Stewart, big difference is that you would see this big room at Better Homes and Gardens, a couch with all these pillows. And with Martha, you might see one beautiful pair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then, so how did you, so did it just sort of happen really naturally like that, that she's like you, Christina, go do this. You're going to learn my brand. Like, why did she choose you in that moment of that nook? I've thought just, about just it. I, I think it was happenstance. I was in the right place at the you right just time. said the thing. You yeah. know, I was the same age as her daughter. And I, you know, mm. when I ultimately left after a 19 year run, that was very, very hard, but also allowed, gave me a lot of opportunity. You know, it was time for me to leave, you know, Martha. And in a way, it was time for me to like sort of leave the home. Mm -hmm. You know, she was never a mother to me at all, but it was time for me to sort of leave that. So, uh, you know, I think I'm not sure why I got picked at all. Mm -hmm. Still, no idea. That's so fascinating. So then what was your next job from sales? Like how did like people would say you got to, you know, check with Christina if that pair is good enough, but like, what was the next job for you? So I went into management. So Mm -hmm. I was sales director, then I was associate publisher. And I probably was, my first management role was probably as the advertising director of Martha Stewart Kids. And that's when she went to, when she was brought up on charges for insider trading. And so I was still early in my career. I was married. I had three kids and I had three kids very, very quickly. I had a daughter and less than two years later, I had twins. And soon after that, I was going through a very, very, very horrible divorce. 
What, what year, year was this? This was, oh my gosh, 2005. 2005. Oh, I hope, not, I, I hope people aren't checking these dates because I'm close. Oh, no. <laughs> just ballparking is okay. I just, I just want to know, and, and, but I just assumed, I, I guess I just didn't figure out the dates. I just assumed that your career with Martha Stewart ended with the jail, but no. Oh, no. I was one of the few oh. people that stayed. And I stayed because my personal life was in turmoil. Mm. And I had a leadership role at in the organization. And it was in a way, you know, more comfortable for me to stay than it was to leave at that point, right. given the things that were going on in my personal life. Mm -hmm. And so as you can imagine, a lot of people left. I mean, we were an organization of like 175, maybe 200 people. And I remember that the on the business side, we were we were about 17 people at one point. That was just on the business side, not on the editorial side. And I remember that same 17 number because there was a January issue of one of the years when she was in jail that we only had 17 advertising pages and five of them were from Kmart. Wow. So was we there, there was a mass exodus of advertising and advertisers saying we will never buy from a felon. We will never buy advertising from a convicted felon. And so most people think she went to jail for insider trading. She did not go to jail for insider trading. She went to jail for lying to the FBI. So she was brought up on charges. And several months later, pretty quick, because we knew that we were going to lose money very, very quickly. So I would say that months later, she goes on trial and very, very public trial, as you might imagine. And the New York Post, all sorts of media outlets were calling my home because my name was in the magazine. So when you had a phone at that point, uh, tracking mm -hmm. us down, they would look to see who was running, wearing ID badges and follow us all over New York. We were told to never wear our, our ID badge. So she was convicted. And she was given the choice to stay out on appeal or go to jail. And she really asked a lot of us, you know, what do you do? Am I going to, should I go to jail? And she was asking your, the staff, like you, the company? All, yes. She asked people close to her in the company, what is it that she should do? Should she go to jail? And the consensus was to save the company. She needed to go to jail ahead of her appeal. And and she did it. I mean, Martha's a really, really, as I said, very high expectations, very demanding, very clear in her vision. And she definitely had rose-colored gla glasses. She saw the world through a different lens than I think most people did. But she did what was right for herself, but also what was right for the business. And she went to jail for eight months. Did you visit her when she was in prison? You know, I was on the list, but so I had these young kids and I just didn't think the right thing for me would be to go at that time. But I wrote to her every week. Because she wrote a, read, a hand yeah, wrote a letter? Hand, hand letters because she wow. could read letter. Letters were accepted, you know. Wow. So was that entire time that she was in prison, was she sort of like planning her, her kind of rebirth or reawakening when she got out? Was she strategizing about how to build back her company? Like what was going on in the mind of this phenomenally gifted entrepreneur? 
Well, I can tell you what transpired. I I don't really know what was going on in her mind, but yes, we were planning for when she got out, what would we do? And they brought in new leadership and, you know, the story as it unfolds had us back to profitability. It took us two years. And there was something about being on this brand that we did love dearly and Mm -hmm. believing that it was possible that we could get back to profitability by making some pretty outrageous decisions and, you know, just going for bold. And she came out and entertained all sorts of people within the advertising community. In part, people wanted to know about her experience. Mm. I mean, she could talk about, you know, she never created the cookbook, but she talked about creating a cookbook of how to cook in a microwave because there was a microwave in the commissary <laughs> where that she would make things. and. She talked about making like caramel and how hard it is to melt in a microwave, but it took us two <laughs> years to get back to profitability. And, and we did, and we grew and grew and grew. It was, it's, it's really a fascinating comeback story. How did the company survive? Did they just, did she just have that much cash on hand to survive the loss of all the advertising revenue? What's interesting is that it was both an advertising driven brand but it was also a merchandising consumers. company. Consumers. Mm-hmm. So consumers were still wanting Martha Stewart products. There was an inherent value. There was an inherent prestige about them, even if they were sold in Kmart, right? You wanted that Martha Stewart candle. You wanted to set your table like she would set her table. So the merchandising, while it, it took a hit to a certain degree, the merchandising was keeping us afloat for sure. And when she came out, she was doing a weekly television program before it was on, it aired on Sundays and it was in syndication. When she came out, she launched her daytime lifestyle show where it appeared every day. It was like, you know, the Kelly Clarkson show that you would see now. It was a lifestyle show where she would cook, she'd entertain. Yes, she'd have stars on. And people wanted to watch her. Her producer was Mark Burnett, who produced Amazing Race, Survivor. And she did the Martha Stewart Apprentice show as well. Oh, Oh, right. I forgot about that. So, but, but she had, so she just got out and just went for it. Like she must have had people saying like, you're tainted, you know, like she just, she just kept like, or was it like people are so curious about her that she could get the show, she could get the guests to come on? Like, was it hard? I think that fans of Martha were always fans of Martha. I mean, there were the Martha fans and then the Martha haters, right? So there was a lot of people rooting for her success, but there was also mm-hmm. a lot of people who knew they could make money off of her success. Mm-hmm. Right. Christina, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons you learned from this experience of working with such a dynamic visionary leader? I I mean, obviously 19 years in a role in it, well, in a series of roles, working this closely with someone who has so much fame and so much power and so much ambition. Do you have uh do you have sort of like a collection of lessons or traits or just habits that you can share with our listeners? Well, I think that there's a few. I mean, Martha told me to learn something new every day and go teach it to somebody else. And that's sort of been like a mantra that I've always 
lived by. And there's a there's a Mel Robbins, I think it's a Mel Robbins quote where she says, go the extra mile because it's never crowded. And I think that she taught me to always think bigger than what's possible and to demand the highest standards and just have more expectation for setting your own standards. So my personal brand and how I show up, I mean, 19 years, you can imagine that my personal brand has a lot to do with what I learned there. And knowing that she was a bit of a, you know, she was an outlier, she was a trailblazer. And knowing that you were working for a trailblazer, it meant that you could trailblaze. Mm -hmm. It meant that when the marketplace had never done integrations before, that our thinking about bringing integrations and the concept of integrated marketing into the advertising side of the business, the sales side of the business was possible. And she would, you know, if you fought for something, she would oftentimes, even though she may have questioned it, she'd be like, okay, let's see how it goes. What was it like to work with her on the TV show? Because you were part of that, right? I worked on the television show in terms of the advertising that I got for the television Uh show and in terms Uh of the integration that we sold. So when Martha got opened, and this was after she got a jail, which got more open to being on a television show and I'm bringing in advertising support. So whether it was creating personalized M&Ms to support the M&Ms brand, you know, she'd select the colors, she'd select the little, the little branding on the M&Ms, M and S for Martha Stewart and little holiday icons. And we would do packaging around that for M&Ms to help them in their fourth quarter plans. I think I mentioned to you, I had one integration that didn't go as planned. And that was, and this really speaks to Martha and and who she is. We did an integration and I'm not going to name the the company name, but it was uh, something that you'd put on your Thanksgiving day table and it had a recipe to it. And we had planned for the integration and it was led by the new CMO of the company. So I'm sure he was the new CMO. I'm sure he really wanted to make a really good impact um, for his bosses. And it was a family run organization. And when it came time to film it, we were there in the audience and Martha talked about the product and then talked about her own recipe for the product. So the gentleman who I was, the CMO who I was sitting next to was, you could feel, I could feel his heat coming He was off. in the audience. He was in, he the, was audience. in the, the audience. She was just talking about the product. Okay. He was, she talked about the product and she talked about not how she makes the product better, but how she would do the product. So it did definitely yeah. not hit the mark with the advertising team and the CMO. And so at break, at commercial break, this man jumped out of his seat and charged at Martha Stewart. It was really aggressive. It's one of the more aggressive things I remember in my career. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like this is all my fault too, because I was the one who brought up the integration to her. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I remember like kind of getting in between her and this CMO. And it was, and she was, she held herself very, she stood there saying, what, what can I help you with? And this is when I didn't know that the security, there were security guards, right? All over the place. I didn't realize the securities were packing uh, 
And what do you, what is the guns? First time. And I was like, oh no, I am in so much trouble. But the interesting thing was, is I had to walk him out. I had, we had to really physically remove him from, from, from the studio. And I remember being on the sidewalk with him saying, you know, how can we make this better? You know, how can we resolve this? Now I went back upstairs and we knew that we were on East Coast time. So we knew it hadn't aired out on the West Coast. It wasn't going to air. This was live. It was live. Wow. So she had to go back on, right? It was live. So she had to go to the next segment. So we knew that we could make some edits uh, before it hit for the West Coast. So that was like check. That was one small problem solved. And she, after the show, left for some reason. And I was, I remember walking back into the studio and she was coming in to the studio in her suburban, rolled down the window and was like, meet me in my office. And that's not what she said, but she was more <laughs> I met her in the office thinking that she was going to take me down, right? And be like, I can't believe this is happening. You allowed this to happen. In fact, she said, what was his real problem? And when I explained the problem to her, um, she said, okay, what are we going to do? And she filmed a certain, or it was either a film or an audio uh, recording for their, um, for their conference with all their dealers. So she went the extra mile, no problem, mm. no question asked because she wanted to deliver inherently. She never wanted to, you know, fall short. And then she just didn't couldn't help, take... help herself. She just couldn't help herself talking about her. <laughs> I don't know how to recipes. do this better. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you use that, that re-recorded bit, the different time zones that it played later. Is that correct? No, we did it. We did that it was over and above. She went and recorded oh, something wow. special for, for them in their conference. Them. Right. Wow. We couldn't right. do anything for, for what it was, but we actually actually created a commercial for their television monitors in their store. That was over and above as well. Oh, we did a lot. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. You're all fired up about your business until you have to go and market it, talk about it, promote it. All of that feels so heavy, hard, and overwhelming. We know that your business will flourish when you become comfortable promoting your work. And for that reason, we created Visible, a program that helps women amplify their voice in a world that tries to keep them quiet. Build an audience around your body of work and not just your body. So forget everything you've been taught about marketing. Visible is your fastest route to building an audience of raving fans that can turn into paying clients. Inside bonus, you can ignore trend alerts on Instagram. Join Visible today at joinvisible.co. So how did it come to an end? What when, when at Martha Stewart, like after 19 years... How did you know it was time to go? So after 19 years, we had probably been through six years, five or six years of successive new EVPs, EVP who reported directly to Martha Stewart, who was running all of sales and marketing. And I was right underneath that. I think I was an SVP. And I think I, at that time, I was publisher. When I left, I think I was publisher of Everyday Food. So this churn had been going on and going on. And one of the biggest regrets I had is before they brought on the last EVP that I worked with, a woman who I'd worked with for a very, very long time left. And so I thought I was Mm going to step into the role. I'd been there for, as we've said, 19 years. And I never asked for it. Mm -hmm. 
I assumed, and we know the first three letters of assumed, like I just thought, <laughs> and I assumed, and there was a side of me that maybe thought I wasn't ready. And there was a side of me that was dealing with, and I still do today, a ton of imposter syndrome. It could, I really do it. I know that I could do it. I could have done it really well. So they bring in this new gentleman. I don't get the, I don't get the role. And so we don't get, he's always females. He was the first male in that mm-hmm. role. And I remember meeting him that first night before he'd been announced. We met him in the conference room and he shared his plans for how he was going to show up the next day. And I off, I offered, you know, how can I support you? What would you like me to do? What do you want my role to be? And he said, just smile. Mm. Oh. And at that moment, I knew like that was it. And it, it was okay. And I might've been disappointed and angry and all the things, but I knew that the organization was going to be changed forever. So I did show up and, you know, I did smile and then I dropped my coffee all over the place. It was one of those purple where it went up and went up. So I created such a, such noise. So probably a couple of months later, he had a meeting with me and, you know, he would make these hand movements uh, around his face and said, people said, you are the most, you are the hardest worker. People say you're the hardest worker here. I want to see some of that from you. And it was so, it was really, really tough. And I was like, all the signs are saying that it's time. And so one of the previous SVPs or EVPs, one of the previous people in that role recruited me to go work for her at another company. And as soon as I got the job offer, I took it. And, and that was sort of the journey of sort of leaving, you know, what had been such a security blanket for me and a rough, rough 19 years at the same time. Mm-hmm. But it was time for me to, you know, grow up and, 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 and sort of launch myself. So where did you go? I went to a digital uh, content company that's no longer exists, and um, they were looking to turn their uh, digital product offering into a storytelling offering. And Mm. storytelling is something I had been doing for years. I doubled the deal size in eight months, and my uh, the CEO and the founder of this company asked me to recruit the global president. And I said, sure. They asked me if I knew this woman. I said, yes, I did. And they said, would you help sell her on coming here and taking this role? And it would have been a really big change for her because she had a very big job someplace else. So I spent a couple months recruiting her to take on the role of being my boss. And she accepted. And four weeks and four meetings later, she fired me. (laughs) (laughs) What? Oh, wow. What? And now the company doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and now the company does not exist anymore. And so if you were going to give me, if I was going to give you a lesson from that period, wow, the lesson would be if you do not, if you do not believe in your people, trust your people, people are the center of everything. It's always the who, it's not the how. Mm-hmm. And that company didn't believe in the people. They believed in their digital product more than Mm. they did in people. And so the company doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Fast company. So I went to fast company as the chief revenue officer and I had been 
you know, at that point, I hadn't subscribed to any more magazines, right? Because everything was going digital, but I always maintained my Fast Company subscription. I just loved the brand. I loved Mm. reading it. I loved the stories of founder. I loved the stories of creative game changers changing the game. And they were really the first to really feature a lot of women. Like you were seeing Mm. women in roles there. You weren't seeing them anywhere else. So I was a big fan of the brand. And what was interesting is that Fast Company was set up very, very differently from other magazines of its type. The reporting structure of the business side went to the editor. Typically, there was church and state. So two businesses, two business lines, right? But in this case, everybody reported up to the editor. And it was owned by, it's still owned by Mansueto Ventures. And Mansueto Ventures also owned Inc. Magazine. Mm-hmm. Same case over at Inc. Mm-hmm. Everybody reported up to the editor. So when I was hired, the company had been on the advertising side, had been struggling for many years. And they had been without a leader for a long time. And the editor said, just come in and do what you can. I trust you. Make all the decisions. And I believe him. I took the job thinking that I would be able to, it would be something that I would run when in fact, when I started making decisions like launching a podcast, what I realized was that there was a church and state that I wasn't, Mm. I didn't really fully understand, but the, my boss felt that podcasts at the time were a passing fancy and that we shouldn't be um, (laughs) investing in that platform when we had to keep our eyes on other platforms. So we know that story and how, where it goes. They have a podcast now, but I will tell you, I learned that while in that role that I would never work for anybody again, Mm. you know, whether it was- How long were you there? Probably two and a half years. Oh, okay. I learned that I wanted to make my own decisions, that I wanted to trust myself to make decisions and to make game-changing decisions. Because even working for Martha Stewart, I had really not been given the opportunity to invest in things that I know would have made a really, really big difference. So I started my own company. I'll keep going with Fast Company. So Fast Company, both Inc. and Fast Company were struggling with the advertising side. And so there was the two editors were vying for a larger role and the ink editor uh, won out. And so they got rid of my boss and they got rid of me and combined the advertising and sales together and sort of got rid of rid of the man- management. So I say I was sort of exiled. And I, I, while I was upset, as you can imagine, I'd met Cher, right? I had, I had done like one event, one week long event that dropped a million dollars of profit to the bottom line. Like I did some pretty amazing things, but there was a funny, there was, you know, I had been hearing whispers that something wasn't right, that I really wasn't that happy. And here I was as the CRO, it's what people expected of me. Like I'd hit the C-suite and I kind of thought it would be easier there. And I kind of thought that the whispers and nudges would go away and they did not. So what was it that I really wanted to do? And I know people had expectations of me, like that I would go on maybe to be a CRO someplace else. And I also had those expectations of myself as well. But I could tell that that I 
the media business was mm-hmm. no longer the place that's not where I really wanted to be. And somebody who had worked for me at Fast Company, who had been out of work for some time, she had had an accident. She had an accident while working. So she was on workman's compensation. She called me and said, you are the first person I'm calling since I've my recovery. And it had been many, many, many months. And she said, I want to let you know that you changed my life, both personally and professionally. And I think you should be a coach. Mm. And it was so funny. You know, working for Martha Stewart, we didn't have a big HR department a lot of the time. And there wasn't any development. And I was a new manager. And I was going through crisis after crisis after crisis. So on every any given lunch hour, you could find me at the Barnes and Noble, like on the floor of the self-help aisle. Like mm-hmm. I did a lot of work early on mm-hmm. in my career to do the work on myself and also to do the work on my leadership and how I was going to lead myself to lead others with more impact. So when she said, why don't you be a coach? Well, I thought that I had a lot of judgment around coaches, right? And mm-hmm. I thought others mm-hmm. would have judgment around coaches, but there was this sort of ignition. I said, I'm going to do this. So I held my first workshop, Lead Your Extraordinary Life, with these women that were amazing. And I really found, like, when I was in it, I felt like this was what I was meant to do. And left me 24 hours. I wasn't feeling well. So I was, like, on a high, but also not feeling well. And I remember coming home and getting a blood test taken. And in a short while later, like, 24 hours. I was put into the hospital for the first of, I think I was there for 36 days. The first round I went into the hospital, but I was diagnosed with AML leukemia and I was robbed. Like I really was like, Oh, come on. I mean, I was scared and everything, but I also was like, I finally figured out what I want to do after all this time. And now it's been taken away from me. And a lot of that was probably a survival tactic, right? A lot of that was part of keeping, I call it my post-traumatic growth uh, episode, mm-hmm. the year long of, of treatment. But Dr. Park, I went into the emergency room that night and Dr. Park, a lot of the doctors were coming in asking the same questions over and over and over again. And Dr. Park came in, he was reading my blood test, asking many of the same questions. And then he gave me like a life-saving thought. It changed my whole world because my family was there. My One of my children was there. And my best friends were there and everybody was looking at me like I was going to die. And Dr. Park said, you don't come to MSK, Memorial Sloan Kettering. You don't come to Memorial Sloan Kettering to be treated. You come to be cured. And I remember like looking at my family being like, okay, game on, like we're going to do this. And in that moment, I was like, okay, what's really possible for me? And is it possible I could build a thriving and growing coaching and consultancy business? Is it possible that I could write a book? Is it possible that I could put myself into a certification program? Is it possible? And so I was like, hey, why not? And so again, in part, because I'm not pounding my chest, it was was definitely a survival tactic, but it kept me going. And so I launched a when I was feeling towards the end of my treatment, when I was feeling better, I launched a 30 day challenge with people a little bit outside of my network, just like one wrong outside of my network. And that's how my coaching business started. Oh my God. I don't even know where to start. Okay. First of all, that's just amazing. 
I also have, as you know, uh, was diagnosed at, with cancer back when I was 29, 30. So I, I know that feeling and it's just, I understand like the looks that you get and the discomfort, even with the word, like they wouldn't want to talk about it and they just, it equals death. And it's just like, but you know what? I've kind of feel okay. And like, let's go. So I love the story that you sort of had the concept of the idea of your business while you were being treated for cancer. Yeah. And I walked around with my computer and people were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm writing my book. Starting a business. Oh, you're right. You wrote, you started writing, I was your book. writing my book, starting a business. And I was like, we got it. We got it. We got to go. We got We got to go. But yeah, the, you know, sort of the boulder of cancer is just another chapter of, yeah. you know, it's just a whole new dimension. And I am very close to hitting my four years, I think, out. And mm-hmm. that'll be a huge marker for me. And what is it like to run your business now? What does that feel like? Oh, well, just like everything. Some days are good, some days are bad, but I am so much more joyful. I mean, when you think about the joy, right? I have so many more joyful days now than I ever <laughs> had. And I kind of want to share that, you know, when you are, we are raised to think like, you know, you got to go to college, you got to get a great job, you got to find your one true soulmate, right? Got to have your children. And we have all these goals. And then women, we get into this sort of midlife and we question like, is this it? And so I got to answer that, like, no, that this isn't Mm -hmm. it. And I can create my own it. I can create my own life script. My mother used to always say that to me, you write your own life script. And so I've got like the back half of my life to live. And I want to, you know, I talk about in the book for success sake, I talk about my process of defining success. And we know success isn't money and it's not things. Although when you're successful, you have money and things, right? But success to me was really about being successful, F-U-L-L, successful with an extra L, full of more joy, ease, and impact. Well, what does it look like to be more joyful? And I ask myself, that's like a filter I have in my business every single day. It's how do I create more impact? Well, will that impact bring you joy? Because if it doesn't, that may not be the impact I want to make. And what does ease look like? That ease for me is a kind of a hard thing. I'm not really easy. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a high, you know, a high performance coach. Like sometimes I make things harder than they need to be. So reminding myself of the ease, like if this could be easy, what would it look like? So what it looks like to run my business every day is I get to work with uh, visionary leaders and I work with some of the most amazing leaders. And we all leaders, yourself, your beautiful selves included here, kind of are all more alike than we than we know. And I think once we realize, you know, being a CEO leading companies today, it can be so incredibly lonely. And there's imposter syndrome, and there's, you know, waxing and waning of confidence, and there's sometimes doubt, and it's lonely. So I get to work with visionary CEOs as their thought partner, I get to, you know, help them see what they can't see, I help them see what they can see a little bit more clearly. And I am working with a company right now, and I've been blessed to be given the opportunity of sharing this with you, that the company's called HerMD. 
and it's a company that's changing women's healthcare. Mm-hmm. And it's it's they are changing women's health in midlife and perimenopause and menopause. And for me, coming out of cancer, a year of cancer treatment with all those chemicals, it just wreaked havoc on my body. And I didn't have a HerMD to go to to say, here are all my symptoms and what can we do about it? Instead, my my, uh, OBGYN told me to grin and bear it. Mm. (gasps) So you know, people with visions, just like your yourselves and, and the beautiful work you do, sometimes when we have a vision, it can be really hard because we're breaking down the system. Mm-hmm. Her breaking down the system of healthcare. It's breaking down the system of women's healthcare takes a back seat to men's healthcare, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it can be really hard. And if I want every visionary leader to have a co-partner, to have a co-pilot, a thinker, to help them have a landing, have a net for when the days feel so hard. Mm-hmm. Christina, That's can so I ask you what that looks like? It, I'm so curious what it would be. I mean, what an amazing business you've created for yourself to have interactions with CEOs and to get to have to to be the listener in their lives. And I'm just wondering as a CEO, things happen in erratically and unexpectedly. And so what does that container look like for your coaching clients? How do they have access to you? How do you communicate with them? I'm just, I'm so curious how you've shaped that, that program or that product. Yeah, I, I I have a strong belief that the best thing for visionary CEOs is to have a meeting with me once a week. And there's a there is a plan and there's sort of a curriculum that we follow. But I also work with their leadership teams. And I also work with their entire organizations. And they bring me in when they're trying to create new possibilities where they feel like they they need support. So it's sort of a little bit of a surround sound. Sometimes I'm just working with the CEO one-on-one and sometimes I'm like a little bit of a secret agent, like they don't want anybody to know. (laughs) But more often than not, people actually bring me in to help them throughout the organization. But it can be a lot on trusting. It can be a lot on defining like who you are as the CEO, because we have to remember we as the CEO are different than our personal identity and our self-worth. So when we are leading these visionary companies, we become a part of it, right? And we have to remember that, yes, that is your blood, sweat, and tears, but it doesn't mean anything about your self-worth. Your self-worth is very, very much standalone. So what is the relationship they want to have with the CEO of themselves? And when they're struggling with decisions, it's helping them, let's make this decision. Are we making it today from the CEO chair or are we making it from the visionary chair? Right, right. Mm -hmm. And seeing which is really best for the business. And then also oftentimes when you're scaling these types of companies, it's important to sort of help them see who is the CEO they wanna be 12 months, three years from now. And saying, okay, if you were making that decision, three years out, what would be, how would it impact how you show up today? So really getting them to think, you know, Dr. Benjamin Hardy says, you know, your you make your, Dan Sullivan says your future, the bigger your future is, the better your decisions today. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. And your clients, they run some big companies. 
fun. Like multi, multi, multi millions of dollar kind of companies, right? Well, I coach a lot of different companies, but I do coach some, some big companies and, you know, the bigger the company, the bigger the risk and the bigger their visions have to be and grow. It gets harder. The bigger they get it, you know, it gets harder. I'm a big proponent in possibilities and what happens when we get bigger we tend to fall into okay how are businesses typically run right and like strategic planning strategic planning from looking back at the past to create the future which means you're really creating more of the same mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or you're creating increments of improvement different off of what's established and so sometimes visionary leaders can fall into sort of standard ways of thinking. And so I help CEOs of bigger companies think about, you know, what if we never did things the same way that we do them now? Like, what are we tolerating that we no longer want to tolerate? Mm -hmm. And what if we could decide on our future and then reverse engineering it? And we do it through a series of questions that are really unbusiness related Mm -hmm. that oftentimes get underneath some of the real problems that are really getting in, in, into the way of their growth. Very relatable. <laughs> Jenny. <laughs> I didn't tell her to say that Jenny or anything. I didn't. Now I have to think about what I just said. <laughs> I know we can talk later. So I'll just follow that up with, you know, oftentimes when I talk about the possibilities and future thinking, People say, well, we're constrained. We're constrained because of lack of budget or restrained because of Mm -hmm. lack of people. And I remind people of just a couple of years ago what the constraint was when CEOs of Google and Microsoft, all these hundreds of thousands Ford were hundreds of thousands of employees. When you told that CEO that they had to move their employees home in a matter of days and that you didn't know when they would come back again, like they would have been like, no possible way. Well, in fact, from constraint, they had to say, well, what's possible? We And they had to get to, well, we must. And when you think about the vaccines, whether you're for them or against them, typically it takes 12, nine to 12 years to create a vaccine. And the CEOs of the pharmaceutical companies were told they needed to do it in nine months. So think about what they had to change in their thinking to really sort of tear down a process of nine to 12 years to recreate it for nine months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's so good. So good. Well, Jenny. All right, Christina. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Hopefully we will be able to have you back on the podcast to have a follow-up conversation because I think that having you share some more of your coaching techniques and strategies would be incredibly useful for not only us selfishly, but also some of our listeners. But before we go, I would love to ask you to share something that's bringing you joy in your life right now and a tool that our listeners can use to help them hustle in their career or business. The joy would be maybe an expected answer, but I am blessed to have three children. I have a daughter, Caroline, and I have twin boys, Jack and Teddy. And I've raised my kids primarily by myself for about 16 years. And they have all successfully graduated and are working in the city. So not too far from me. So the joy I get is seeing 
my children become, you know, the individuals I'd always hoped that they mm-hmm. would become. I mean, I know it sounds pretty a typical answer, but it gives it really does give me the most joy. And then the hustle, it's really simple. I use my I use on a, a Mac computer and the notes app on my mm-hmm. Mac computer. Mm-hmm. I have up on my phone. I have up on my computer at all times. I take notes all day long. I don't wait to journal if I have a thought that I want to journal on. I can just put it right there in my notes. And if you can think about your notes as like sort of your best friend that you can always rely on to like dump on, that's how I use my notes section. And if you've read my <laughs> hundreds of notes, that would probably tell you a lot about me. But that's where I get get the most creative. When I'm out on a walk, I have a thought, it just goes yeah. into my notes. Yeah, that's good. I don't think anyone's ever said that, like the notes. So mm-hmm. on the that's podcast, good. no, no, yeah. that's great. I, I use that's- them too prolifically and I agree prolifically. With you. Yeah. 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 That's great. Thank you so much. Well, this has so, been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, what's giving see. me joy right now is having <laughs> spent this time with you ladies. I really appreciate it. Well tell everyone where they can learn more about you and maybe even a little plug for your book. Oh so you can learn more about me at ChristinaLangdon.com. I publish the Sunday Sunshine, which is a newsletter every Sunday in front of the work week so that you don't have to have the Sunday scaries that you can just (laughs) dive in (laughs) and have a bit of motivation and maybe a new thought to start off the work week. So you can subscribe there. And then I wrote a book. It's called For Success Sake, Easy Steps to Living an Extraordinary Life. And um, you can buy that on Amazon.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Christina. You're welcome. It was so nice to see you. This podcast is brought to you by Marvelous. Marvelous helps you build and grow your own courses, memberships, and live streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. If you're looking for a simple, beautiful, custom branded platform to build and grow your online business, you can learn more at heymarvelous.com.